Last week, we heard an incredibly powerful testimony uh, of, of the fact that God's, God had this idea way before any of us even showed up. In fact, the story was Don, that Don shared was of a dream that he had at the end of 2011. Now, at that point, Amy and I, it was a few weeks after Don had that dream that Amy and I were walking around Southern California, and we, January the 1st, 2012, and we sensed God say, it's time to go home. Almost exactly the same time. If you haven't heard that story, I can't rehearse it now. You need to listen to it. If you want to find out what Trinity Church Nottingham is about, that story is foundational for us. And I'd forgotten how powerful it was. I've, been, I've known about it for a few months. So I didn't expect, because I hadn't thought it through, the response <laughs> that, it would, that it would elicit. And so I was hoping that we could nicely transition after Don's story and then I could get on with what I was going to do. Unfortunately, the whole of the front row was sobbing on their knees and many of you were moved and... Uh, it took a little bit longer to move on. But he, Don, shared a picture that I believe was from God, which was what it would look like for a church to be on fire. And what would it look like? It would look like worship like we've never seen before. People coming to faith. There was a picture of baptism. People coming into the life of the church and people going out into the city and falling down under the power of God. That's what it's going to look like. I believe God's going to do it. Here's the question that I want to address this week. What, what is the connection between that, that beautiful vision of the church on fire, and the second part of our vision, our hope, our dream for this church, which is to see the city alive? What's the connection? How does the one connect with the other? And in answer to that, we turn to Ezekiel. And you might want to grab a Bible or even... A phone, which I believe can double up. Because <laughs> we're really going to be looking in a little bit of depth at Ezekiel's vision. Now for those that don't know, Ezekiel, uh, and I could try and describe, he's sort of, I mean he's sort of like two-thirds of the way through the old bit of the Bible, the Old Testament. Uh, in the bigger books, there's a few prophets in a row, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and um, Ezekiel finds his place just after those guys. You might want, if you're turning uh, in a Bible, you might want to look for him. Otherwise, just type it into your search on your phone. Ezekiel was a prophet in the time where Israel, God's people of the Old Testament, had lost their home. They'd been dragged out of their home, Jerusalem. They'd been taken all the way to Babylon. And Ezekiel's a prophet who lives in that time. In fact, he's prophesying whilst in Babylon. He's far away from home and he's prophesying to a people who are also far away from home. They've lost their roots. They are literally homeless. And they're feeling the dislocation that, that you feel when you're in that position. Some of you have just come to university for the first time. And for some of you, probably for many of you, it's the first time you've ever left home. And you'd probably be lying, though you've been trying to fake it till you make it, though you've been trying to suppress every feeling, there is underneath all the excitement of newness and new things, there is that feeling of, oh my gosh, something's changed. And there's that aching, that pang within you for home. A nice square meal that doesn't involve chips. Somebody to do your washing for you. All of these things, you know, the, the sort of comforts of home. Israel had lost all of those things. And Ezekiel, like the other prophets, comes to Israel with a couple of things. Firstly, a, a warning. And sometimes not just a warning, but an explanation for what had happened. This is why you're in exile, Israel. 
an explanation for what had taken place and why it had taken place, but to do that theologically, in other words, to do that in the, in the sight of God. God says, this is why that happened. Now, often that was a stern rebuke, but sometimes when bad stuff has happened, a stern rebuke can help you make sense of it. Help you figure out what, how and why and where you might move forward. That's how the prophets work in the Old Testament. But there's never just a rebuke. There's never just a warning. There's also always a hope-filled promise. And Ezekiel is full, particularly towards the end. If you only like the good stuff, read the second half. <laughs> particularly towards the end, there's the promises of what God is going to do. And one of those we read was in chapter 43. And in that chapter, we see this picture of what it will look like when Israel will return to Jerusalem, when the temple will be rebuilt, and more importantly, while God's presence will once again fill his temple. It says this, verse 2, His voice was like the roar of rushing waters, and the land this is the city alive, by the way. The land was radiant with his glory. The vision I saw was like the vision I'd seen when he came to destroy the city and like the visions I'd seen by the river Kabar. And I fell face down. The glory of the Lord entered the temple through the gate facing east. Then the spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. This is a picture of homecoming. This is a picture of the church on fire. What's it going to look like? What, what will the church on fire look like? I tell you this place, and I feel we're, we're seeing it already. We will sense, we will know the glory of the Lord in this place. What is the glory of the Lord? That, that word glory in the Old Testament, so it's a Hebrew word kavod. It literally means weight. You know, sometimes you're in the presence of somebody who you know is a bit important. And you feel like, oh my gosh, this, you feel like a, almost like a weight around you. People have said throughout the history, uh, people who have met with God have said consistently that being in God's presence is like that only way more. That there's a weight to God's presence. Things become dense, like a thickness. It's like, you know, people say this, don't they? You could cut the atmosphere with a knife. Interesting, that phrase, isn't it? It's literally a picture of density, isn't it? That the atmosphere itself becomes physical. It's palpable, people say. Palpable, you can touch it, palpate it, any medical students here. You can feel it. Church on fire, the glory of the God in the temple. Now what happens between Ezekiel 43 and 47, where we're going to pick it up in a minute, is a couple of things. I think they're significant. The first is that the altar is restored. The altar, if you didn't know, is a place in God's temple, in the, right at the heart of the temple. It's right in the middle of all the goings on. It's where the sacrifices were made. And the altar is the place where worship happened. The first thing that happens after this vision of God's glory being revealed is that the altar, the place of worship, is reestablished. That is exactly what's been going on here at Trinity Church in this last year. We've been all about starting with worship because it all, it's all about worship. The reason we're created is to, is to worship him. And in worship of him, we find the truest experience of what it means to be human. Theologian Tom Wright says this, you become like what you worship. And we all worship something. To be human is to worship. The question is, is not whether we worship or whether we don't worship. The question is, who are we worshiping? You know, you Saturday night, 
You go out on Saturday night, the bars are full. Understand what's going on there. It's not just people having a good time, though it is, and we celebrate that, folks. There's more going on. There is worship. You go out on Saturday afternoon, or used to be Saturday afternoon, three o'clock kickoffs, a thing of the past. You go to football, and what is happening there? Yes, it's celebration, it's enjoyment, but there is also worship. We as humans cannot avoid worshipping. I have four young kids. You know, people worship their kids in our culture. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely, we worship our kids. Altar is restored. The place of worship is restored. That's the first thing. But the second thing, the priesthood is restored. So it's firstly about a place of worship. The second thing, it's about people. Who is the priesthood in the Bible? Well, yes, there is a particular group of people whose job it is to represent God to the whole, the whole world. And yet, very clearly, before we have any particular priesthood, the Bible is very clear that every human being is made to be a priest. Every human being's job is to reflect and resemble, to manifest, to mirror God's own glory, the own way, his own presence to the world. Every one of us here is a priest. For the city to become alive, for us to get from the church being on fire to the city become alive, we have to reestablish worship. We have to adore, we have to devote ourselves to his presence. And we have to allow him to, to make us effective priests, people who can resemble and reflect him in the world. It's about worship, it's about presence, and it's about people. Who are the people? You are the people. You are the priests of the Most High. After this, Ezekiel has another vision which begins in the temple itself. This is the vision I want to look at in a bit more detail. What is in this vision? Chapter 47. You still with me? We're in the Bible, I know it's, it's uh, deep stuff, it's, uh, there's a lot of, I suppose there's a lot of material here we're doing today, but I feel it's really important that this particular uh, sermon particularly goes deep, so stick with me if you can, I know there's a lot of detail, but it's good stuff, Ezekiel 47, what do we see, firstly the man, so Ezekiel is with somebody else in this vision, this is a vision, this is, this is like an open vision, Ezekiel's with a man, it's like this spiritual guide. He's like got this spiritual tour guide that he's with. And, and, and that's who the man is in this vision. The man, Ezekiel says, brought me back to the entrance to the temple. And I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple towards the east. Okay, what do we see in this vision? The first thing we see in this vision is water. This man guiding Ezekiel through the temple takes him to the threshold of the temple, to the front door. And they see water. Water is a significant emblem and symbol in the Bible. It has to do with God's presence. It has to do, generally speaking, with blessing. Generally, there are a couple of occasions when a lot of water is a bad thing. Uh, think, think of Noah and the flood. <laughs> but often, water has to do with blessing. And here, it has to do with blessing. In fact, water is not just about God's blessing. It's about his very presence. Water is an image that's used later on as a direct image for the Holy Spirit. This folks is living water well how much water is there verse 2 he led me round the outside 
To the outer gate facing east, and the water was trickling from the south side. There isn't a lot of water. The the, the original language is almost like it's it's almost like a flask being opened. That's the picture. It's like somebody standing by the threshold of the temple and just pouring out a little bottle of Evian. Other uh, brands of water are available. Pellegrino. (laughs) Whatever. Sainsbury's own. It's getting worse. There's a small trickle of water, that's the point. A little bit of water. That's what Ezekiel sees. It starts with water. Starts with water. How's a city come alive? It begins with water. Begins with the living water. Begins with the presence of God. How much? Just a little bit of water. Just a little bit of water. That's where it begins. Just a trickle. Just a taste. Just a taste. But enough. Enough. Well, then we have the measuring beginning. (laughs) Whoever this man is that Ezekiel is with, this is the second time now he's got his ruler out. His measuring tape. And he's doing the same thing now. It says, verse 9, no, 3. I can't see. I need reading glasses, folks. As the man went eastward with a measuring line in his hand, he measured off a thousand cubits and led me through the water that was ankle deep. A thousand cubits, for those who are interested, is 530 meters. So this man now leads Ezekiel out from the temple, the place where there's a trickle of water, and takes him a 530 meter uh, journey and they stop and what do they see? The stream now has grown and the stream reaches Ezekiel's ankles. That's pretty amazing. The water uh, is collected, the water is increasing in intensity. The further away you get from the temple, typically the opposite happens, doesn't it, with water? The source usually is the place where the intensity is the greatest, but actually what we see is the reverse here. This in itself is miraculous. But there's a further stage, stage two. A thousand cubits more. Now, just over one kilometer, and what do we see? The stream is now reaching Ezekiel's knees. Verse four, and led me through the water that was knee deep. Now the man measured off another thousand cubits and led me through the water that was up to the waist. We're now 1500k, about the furthest distance I've ever run in one go. And what we find is that the water has gone from the ankle to the knee and now it's at the waist. The further from the temple, the deeper the water, the deeper the living water goes. Finally, stage four, a further 530 meters, now two kilometers or just a little bit over. The trickle, a a park run away, if you like. The trickle has swelled to a stream. Look look at this. He measured off another thousand, but now it was a river that I could not cross because the water had risen and was too deep. It was deep enough to swim in, a river that no one could cross. He asked me, son of man, do you see this? It's framed here in in the NIV as a question. Actually, some commentators say it should be an exclamation. The, The man, the measuring man, is saying, son of man, do you see this? Do you see this miracle? That the further we get from the trickle, the trickle in the temple, the deeper the water gets. So that this living water is collecting. In fact, the intensity of this living water increases the further we get from the temple. This, folks, is a miracle. You're meant to read this and think, wow, that's surprising. 
I wouldn't have expected more water the further you get from the temple. That's what we're meant to do. The miracles keep on coming. Consider the journey that the water would have to do, to have to, have to go in order to get to its destination, which is we're about to read, is the Dead Sea. For the water to get from the temple to the Dead Sea, geographers say, it would have to go down the Kidron Valley, up over the Mount of Olives, then crossing a series of mountains and valleys before ending up where it does in the Dead Sea. Folks, I hate to break it to you, but water does not travel against gravity. It's impossible. It flows downward. That's just what happens. There may be some physicists here who have, a, have some kind of example of where that doesn't happen, but that's my experience. Let me say that. <laughs> I can only speak from my experience. My limited knowledge. That's what happens with water, right? That's what happens. And here the water is doing it's doing both, down and up, down and up, over the, down the valleys and up over the hills until it finds its place in the Dead Sea. What about the location? The place the water is flowing, the destination of the water is the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is called the Dead Sea because it is dead. This is one of the examples of where the Bible actually helps us in understanding itself. The Dead Sea is, it, it is a dead place. It's the dead place because it's the, partly because it's geography. You know the dead, dead Sea. I didn't know this, but it's the lowest place in the earth on land in the earth. It's 430 meters below sea level. Do you know the salinity? In other words, the salt content of the Dead Sea is between 26 and 35 percent. A third of the Dead Sea is salt. It's no wonder it's called the Dead Sea. Nothing can grow. You can float on your back, which is great. But if you want to go and find life, you're not going to find any life in the Dead Sea. You cannot have life in those conditions. And yet, what do we see? In Ezekiel's vision, the picture is of salt water becoming fresh. Verse 8. This water flows towards the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah, where it enters the Dead Sea. When it empties into the sea, the salty water there becomes fresh. Literally, the word in the original language for becomes fresh is literally rafa. It's healed. The word is healed. It's the same word that's used for healing of a disease. This living water brings healing. This living water brings life wherever it flows, even where there's death. Even where all there is is salt and death. This water brings life. This living water brings life. But there's more. Look at the effect that the water has on the surrounding area. Look at the effects. First of all, we see trees. Verse 7. When I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river, like the arboretum. And then we see not just trees, but we see living creatures. Uh, verse 9. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. Not just living creatures. There are swarms of living creatures, and not just uh, living creatures, but fish. There are large numbers. There will be large numbers of fish because the water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. How many fish? How many different kinds? Verse 11. Maybe it's not verse 11. It says, uh, verse 10. The fish will be of many kinds, like the fish of the Mediterranean Sea. Trees, living creatures, swarms of fish many kinds life and we have a summary phrase here 
Wherever the stream flows, everything will live. Here's the conclusion. Not to the sermon. You're not getting off that lightly. (laughs) Whatever that water was in the temple... Whatever that was, whatever that water that happened after the glory of God filled the temple, whatever went on then is trickling out into the world and it's bringing life wherever it goes. And places that were utterly dead are coming alive simply because the water touches them. I believe this is what God wants to do in this city. I believe there are places where people have given up hope because they're so dead. The salt content in these places is way above 50%. I believe there are prisons. I believe there are, there, there are uh, regions. There are uh, areas in this city. I believe there are families in this city. I believe there are homes in this city. I believe there are schools in this city and many more things beside and they're waiting for the water they're waiting for the living water to flow they're waiting for a touch of this living water and when the living water touches them they will come alive this is what God is doing this is what it means this is the connection between a church that's on fire and a city that's alive. And paradoxically, the connection is water. (laughs) Water that doesn't douse the flames, but water that acts like gasoline that spreads the flames to mix the metaphors confusingly. What's he going to do? What's the Lord want to do? He wants to bring the dead things to life. And it involves pouring out the water. And it begins as a trickle. You know, it may be at the moment a trickle in your life. There are some of you here this morning, you know, you're not even in. This, this whole faith thing, it's so new to you and, Maybe you feel like this is like your last stop before you totally check out. And you're on the way out. You're just about to go out the door and you're like, if this doesn't work, I'm done. There's still a trickle. Maybe that some of you are on your way in and this is the first time for ages you've even engaged with church and you're just saying, I don't know, I'm going to give this another chance. Maybe this is the last chance, but I'm going to give it another chance. Just a trickle is enough. There's some of you who have... uh, confused relationship with God it's difficult it's complex maybe because of something in your history something in your past and you're in but yet it's so hard Uh, you lose hope you're you're dismayed and discouraged so much of the time don't worry hold on there's a trickle where there's a trickle there will be a torrent God is at work in your life God is at work in this church. God is at work in this city. God has a plan for each of us. God has a plan for this city. God has a plan for this nation. In a time of turmoil, there will be a torrent. There will be 
a movement of the Spirit of God. I believe it. I believe that's what he's told us. So what? What do we need to do? What is our response? Firstly, we build the temple. Build the temple. We establish the altar. We learn what it means to worship. We do all of that stuff. Because there's always a location. There's always a place. God doesn't work in a place-less way. He doesn't zap us in the abstract. He moves in people. People groups and in places. And he begins in this vision, and I believe he begins with us, in the temple. In the, in the place of worship. Because the place of worship is the place, the place where we learn what it's like to function and move in his presence. It's not the destination, folks. This is where the church gets it wrong. They make the, the location of training the destination. They think the point is a holy huddle. When we all do that, we can, we can make the end Make the means into the end. That's called idolatry. And the church has often done that. The Holy Spirit moves and the church says, oh, this is fantastic. We should do this more. Let's do it every night this week. What do you say? Fantastic. And God's saying, sure, do it every night this week. But at any point, are you going to go and share it? But we have to begin by building the temple, the place where God moves. And some of us are really, we struggle with that idea because it sounds institutional. I want to say to you, it is our intention at Trinity Church Nottingham to build an institution. It is my hope that in a hundred years this church is still going. And it's more on fire with God, the presence of God, than it is now. It is my hope that in that time we've raised up hundreds, thousands of leaders who are pioneering in business, who are pioneering in ministry, who are pioneering in the arts, in teaching, in doctoring, in nursing, in all other sorts of things, mothering and fathering, wherever they're sent. That involves an institution. Institutions are not bad. Institutionalism is bad. Tradition is not bad. Traditionalism is bad. It is our intention here to establish an institution, a place which can be a source of blessing. An institution is just a gathering of people that has a vision to propagate itself beyond itself, beyond its own life, beyond its own lifespan. Many people in our culture say, I, don't, I just don't like that organized religion. Well, I've tried disorganized religion, folks, and it is no fun. <laughs> we don't want a, a, a faith uh, where structures and systems squeeze the life of the Spirit. This is all about the flow of the Spirit. But, but it means structures. We need structures to hold life. Your body, folks, would be rubbish without a skeleton. You'd just be a mass of organs on the ground. And you wouldn't get anywhere. Right? Can I get an amen? <laughs> All right. Some of you want to trade your skeleton in. Fine. We have a vision to build a temple here. And it's not a temple. It's an urban monastery. Our vision, our picture, our hope, our dream is that this church would become an urban monastery. What do I mean? A monastery. Uh, monasteries began in about the fourth century in Egypt. But monasteries are places uh, where people live by a simple rule of life. Don't worry, we're not going to have to move in here. Some of you are looking at me, looking rather concerned. A monastery is a place that's based around a simple rule of life where worship and prayer write the heart of that life. But they have a vision for the whole of the world. 
There are seven spaces in monasteries, seven different kinds of space. Firstly, there's a worship space. Secondly, there's a prayer space. Thirdly, there's community space. Fourthly, there's space for learning. Often monasteries have libraries uh, or places where people could learn, ed, you know, class, classrooms and things. Fifthly, there's a place for work because God's interested in work. Sixthly, there's places for rest. Often you'd have a garden. Seventhly, there are places for hospitality. Those are the seven spaces. And those spaces create room for creativity. Do you know that modern genetics was discovered in a monastery? Gregor Mendel, while crossing his peas in the garden, discovered modern genetics. They're places of artistic endeavor. Do you know how much art? And uh, Do you know the church used to be the patron, the, the backer of the arts? Do you know that the science, scientific revolution is only possible because Christianity has a worldview in which the universe is intelligible because we have a God who reveals things intelligible. Intelligibly. You know, the Sunday school movement out of which all schooling in our nation came was from churches. Do you know your local football club probably came out of a Sunday school? Do you know the NHS as a concept exists because Christians gathered around and started looking after people? Do you know that your university, that all universities came out of, the earliest universities came out of monasticism? Don't you want to do some of that? I do. I want to start a school. I do, I've always wanted to start a school. We may not do that in the next 20 years, but I've always had a dream to do that. Here's the question. What does God want to do in this city and how can we be involved? It's much bigger than a church. It's, it's about blessing the world with a presence, the, the stream of God flowing into every part of life. I want this to be an urban monastery. That's our dream. That's our vision. You're not going to have to wear long brown frocks. But I believe we are going to see the Spirit of God move. And it's urgent. That vision, we're not seeing that now. There is a huge untapped potential here in this physical space. We're using a fraction of it. We have to build this space. Not just because we're full here. By the way, there's no room for more people here. Really. And there's no room for our kids. So there is a physical urgency. But more than that, there's a missional urgency. There is a missional imperative. We have to get this space ready so people can experience God's presence. Not just on Sunday, so people who would never come on Sunday can experience his presence in a workspace. So they can come and work and start businesses here and find out that there's a God who's already here to meet them. So that mums can come and gather and a mums and tots group or whatever we're going to do and experience a people who love them in the middle of their chaos. So that creatives and, and students and all kinds of people, old people and young people and every person in between, that every type of person can experience God's presence, not just in here but flowing from here. So firstly, it's about the temple, an institution from which water can flow. Secondly, we have to grow the trees. It's about the people. It's about an institution but it's about individuals as well. In Ezekiel's earlier vision, the movement's from the altar to the people. Here we have trees all over the place, folks, coming into land. Verse 7, I saw a great number of trees. Verse 12, what kind of trees? Fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Of all kinds. Our vision is to see trees, individuals, disciples of all kinds. In other words, you. Whatever it is that you're called to, whatever vocation, whatever calling is on your life, to be a 
business person, a serial entrepreneur, a mother, a father, an older brother, an older sister, to be an encourager, to be a nurse, to be a doctor, to be a minister, to be a church planter, to be a serial student. What other things? You name it. Fruit of every kind. Fruit of every kind. Every vocation. Everyone involved. The ministry, the priesthood of all believers, the ministry of all people. What do these different trees have in common? Here's what they have in common. The source of their life. The water. The water is what connects them all to one another. And what does that manifest? Leaves, firstly, that do not wither. An image is taken from Psalm 1 and Jeremiah 2. Not chapter 2, but Jeremiah also. And finally, their fruit will serve for food. It tastes good. And their leaves for healing. That's the picture. Institution that brings life. Individuals that bring food to the hungry and healing to the broken. That's what God has in mind for you. Do you know that? He is going to grow fruit in this place on your branches that are going to bring fruit, food to the hungry and fruit uh, and leaves for healing. I just close with this. Are you in? Are you in? I don't just mean do you like the sound of this. I mean will you consecrate yourself to this? Will you set yourself, your life apart for what God wants to do here? Will you begin the journey of giving up more and more of yourself for this? Because Jesus is clear, what we give, when we give, we receive. It is more blessed to give than receive. Jesus says that we find our lives when we lose our lives. I'm willing to lose my life for this. I'm not willing to lose my life for Sunday church but for this, for changing the world as the stream becomes a torrent and an ocean, that might be worth it. What does it look like to do that? Well, the beginnings of that are this. Firstly, I call you, I call you, I urge you, I beseech you. New King James language, King James language. I beseech you, I urge you, I encourage you, pray. Don's vision, this vision will not come about without prayer. It is, it's 12 o'clock folks, I'm sorry. <laughs> we have to pray, we've got to pray. We've got to step up our prayer for this. We've got to step up our prayer. Nothing happens without prayer. It's not strategy, it's not vision that's going to get us here, it's prayer. Secondly, Obey. Where you hear God calling you to respond to this, obey it. What's it going to look like for this to come? It's going to be thousands of acts of individual obedience. Thousands of moments where we just hear the word of the Lord and obey it and God moves. Now that obedience for you might be sorting out some stuff that you just need to get in line with God. Or it might be that, the negative sense, getting your house in order. It might be moving forward positively, beginning a new practice. And that practice might be the third thing, which is give, give, 
Give your life. Give. Have a moment with God where you offer yourself to him again to do this. But also, give. Begin to give if you're not giving financially to the work of this. It's not just the work of this church. It is the mission of the kingdom of God in this city. If you're part of this family and not giving regularly to the life of this church, I encourage you wholeheartedly, begin doing it. It's not that God needs the money. I am clear. God, I feel God has said he's going to provide the money, all the money that's needed. The question for me is, will, will he do in us, will we enable him to do in us what's required for us to be the kind of people who can participate in his movement? And that involves becoming generous people. I'd encourage you to give regularly. But we're also asking people to give beyond what they regularly give, over and above for a period of time as we seek to establish this building in all and for all that God has in mind. And what we're saying, uh, and this is the ask, and I think we have a, uh, something that you maybe received when you came in, there's a bit of information, and then there's a card on it as well. We're asking you guys to consider, and you can get that out now, That's, if you've not already binned it, recycled it, if you want to get that out. We're asking you to consider beyond, over and above what you're giving to the life of the church to consider what you might give uh, to this particular work of establishing this place, this house, this urban monastery, that it might be a place of blessing to the whole city and beyond. And we're, we're saying to people, we're saying this is what we're all doing as a team, it's what we've asked some of our leaders to do, it's what we're asking you to do, to consider what over the next six months you might give. Now, we know that uh, probably aren't very many of us who are just sitting on piles of cash. And so to say, what are you going to give now, isn't what we're asking you to do. Some of you might want to give uh, right now. You might want to give a chunk of money right now. But most of us, this is probably going to look like pledging to give. In other words, we're probably going to say, look, what does it mean for me to give over the next six months, say? Uh, what can I give in that period of time? I believe that if we each of us listen to what God is asking us and respond, there's going to be more than enough uh, that God will supply every need according to his riches in Christ Jesus. I think that's going to be our story. And it's going to be great. So I'm, uh, in a second, I'm just going to encourage us to do that. Why don't we close uh, with a prayer? If Chris could just come forward. <clears throat> Father, thank you that you want to pour out your spirit in this place. And I thank you that you are looking for a people who are hungry to join with you in that. Father, I just ask very simply that you would speak clearly to each of us as we discern what it might mean to pray in a new way, to obey your voice as you speak and to give to what you're doing here. Let your kingdom come as your people ask for your will to be done in our lives and in our city. Amen.